Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, one of the realities of life is that people don't always live up to our expectations. All of us live with a certain set of expectations of, of other people. Husbands have expectations of their wives. Wives have expectations of their husbands. Parents have expectations of their children. And, and children have expectations of their parents. We, we expect, as parents, we expect our children to do their chores. And our children expect us as parents to, to love them and to provide what they need, food and, and a home and, and everything else. And these are natural and, and proper expectations. But sometimes our expectations of others can be misguided. They can be even improper and, and wrong. It would be wrong, for example, for you children to expect your parents to just give you everything you want. It would be wrong for, for parents to expect their children to do things that they are not able to do. Sometimes we have wrong expectations. Wrong expectations of others. And when they don't live up to those expectations, we can become angry, we can become confused, we can become frustrated. We can have, we can develop wrong expectations of other people, but we can also have, we can also develop wrong expectations of the Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes without even realizing it. Maybe we expect him to give us an easy life, good health, a good spouse, good children, a good job. Maybe we expect him to give us success in our business. Maybe we expect him to give us good and happy feelings. Or maybe we think, well, we don't, we don't, that's not what I expect of Jesus. But it's easy to, to say that when we have all those things. But, but subconsciously, we begin to develop this expectation. This is what, this is why he's here. This is why he came. This is why he lives to give me everything I expect from him. We don't say it out loud. We don't maybe even realize we're thinking that. But what happens? What happens when the baby wakes up early every day? What happens when work becomes difficult? What happens when your job doesn't work out? Or what happens when an accident on the road or at work or at home results in ongoing, chronic, lifelong pain? What happens when we are suddenly diagnosed with a life-changing or life-threatening illness? What happens when conflict and tension boils up in our marriage or in our family? What happens when death takes a close family member or friend? What happens when life, when your life, in big or in small ways, doesn't go the way you wanted it to go, you expected it to go? All too often, all too easily, beloved, we become confused, we become anxious, we become frustrated, and we may even become angry. With who? With God. With the Lord Jesus. Why? Why are you allowing this? Why are you doing this to me, we ask? Or at least we think. 
This is not how it's supposed to happen. This is not what I was planning. This is not what I was expecting. We might even think I've been, I've been faithfully seeking and serving God, sincerely trying to seek Him. And, and, and this is what happens. We want God, we want Jesus to live up to our expectations. But what we fail to understand, and, or at least what we struggle to accept, even as, as believers, is that the problem isn't Him. The problem is never the Lord. The problem is that our expectations of Him are wrong. And this is the problem the Lord Jesus addresses in our passage for this morning, Luke 2, verses 41 to 52, and especially in verses 48 to 51. The passage, of course, centers around Jesus and his parents. As a godly couple, Joseph and Mary had had gone up to Jerusalem from Nazareth to celebrate the Passover feast. They did this every year. And, And they had taken Jesus with them. He was 12 years old at the time. It was a big journey from Nazareth to Jerusalem, probably took around five days to walk. And after the Passover was done, they they left Jerusalem again to go back home, to go back to Nazareth, not knowing, not realizing that Jesus had remained behind in the temple. They they assumed that he was with some of their family and friends. And commentators believe that when, when when groups came returned from Jerusalem or were traveling, they would often travel in caravans with the women and children in, in the group in front and, and the, the men and the older children in, in the back. And so maybe Joseph thought Jesus was, was with Mary. Maybe Mary thought Jesus was with Joseph. He was kind of in that in-between age, 12 years old. And so they go for a whole day. And at the end of the day, they realize he's not here. And so they start looking for him. And they look everywhere. They, they look with all their family. They, look, they ask their friends, is he, is he with you? Have you seen him? Nobody has seen him. He's gone. And so they did what any of us would do. They rushed back to Jerusalem to look for him. Finally, after anxiously seeking Jesus for several days, they found him in the temple. We can imagine, I'm sure as parents, we can imagine the wave of relief that washed over them when they, when they saw him. But their relief quickly disappeared when they realized that Jesus didn't seem very concerned at all that they had been looking for him. When they realized that he had actually stayed behind on purpose, they didn't expect that. They didn't expect Jesus, or they expected Jesus rather to be just as relieved as they were to see them. They expected Jesus to be, to so, to be sorry that he had caused them so much trouble. You can almost hear the trembling emotion in the voice of his exhausted and exasperated mother Mary in verse 48 when she says to him, Son, why hast thou thus dealt with us? Behold, thy father and I have sought thee sorrowing. Mary was essentially saying to Jesus, Why have you treated us this way? Look, your father and I have been in agony looking all over for you. Jesus hadn't lived up to Mary and Joseph's expectations. And that caused frustration, that caused confusion, and even anger on their part. Do you you hear that in Mary's words? Do you hear the why? Do you hear the implied accusation? And do you recognize it? As Mary's question, Mary's confusion, Mary's frustration, even perhaps Mary's anger ever risen in your own heart. 
What is the solution? Well, the solution, congregation, is to understand who Jesus really is and what he really came to do. That's what we hope to learn as we consider Jesus' response to Joseph and Mary. And so our theme for this morning, with God's help, is the child Jesus' gospel response to his anxiously seeking parents. We'll see four things about his response. First of all, his searching question. Secondly, his loving correction. Thirdly, his holy compulsion. And fourthly, and lastly, his breathtaking submission. So first of all, let's consider Jesus' searching question. Listen to how Jesus responds to his frustrated parents in verse 49. How is it that ye have sought me? Or to put it a little more simply, and why were you seeking me? It's interesting to note that these are Jesus' first recorded words. But it's important to understand that he was not asking this question in a sinful way because we know that Jesus never sinned. The Bible makes that very clear. He was not sassing. He was not talking back to his parents. He never dishonored his earthly parents. And so this question is not a sinful question. It's a searching question, not just for Mary and Joseph, but, but also for us. You see, it searches our motives. It searches our motives for seeking Jesus. Why were you seeking me? How is it? Why were you seeking me? What was motivating you? For what cause, Jesus asked Joseph and Mary, for what cause, what reason were you looking for me? The Lord Jesus here in his wisdom, and really this, is, this passage is all about his wisdom. You, we know that because it's surrounded by references to his wisdom. In verse 40, he is filled with wisdom. And in verse 52, he, he is increasing in wisdom. And so in his wisdom here, he's, he responds to Mary and Joseph's disappointment with him by probing their hearts. He's only 12 years old, but, but like a wise counselor, he, he wants to know, or, or rather he wants them to know, to discover, to consider, and understand their motivation in seeking him. You see, congregation, so often the reason we become disappointed and frustrated with the Lord has to do with our motivation. Mary and Joseph's disappointment with Jesus partly is due to their motivation for seeking him. I'm going to put it bluntly and, and I hope you'll understand as we go through it why I put it this way, but to put it bluntly, their motivation was, was worldly. Why were they seeking him? What was driving their search? Well, it was their natural affection to to him as their child. Now, now, on the surface, we look at that and we say, that's good. Of, of course they were looking for him. What kind of parent doesn't seek their missing child? I'm sure some of you parents know what that's like. You, you, you know what it's like to have your child wander away in the store and you don't realize right away and all of a sudden you realize she's gone and, and you, you start looking frantically, going down the aisles, looking here and there. And how relieved you are to find Find her or how relieved you are to hear the store person calling over the speaker system, there's a missing child. Or maybe you, you've driven away from church before or some other place and you've gotten home and you, you realize one of your children's missing. You, you forgot them at church. And so you rush back to church looking for anxiously seeking your missing child. Every caring and responsible parent looks for their child who has gone missing. So what's the problem? What's the problem with that? What's the problem with Mary and Joseph's natural affection for Jesus motivating their seeking him? 
Well, the problem, as Jesus makes clear in his second question, the problem was that this motivation, this natural affection, failed to recognize the fact that Jesus didn't first and foremost belong to them. He first and foremost belonged to God. Jesus, or Joseph and Mary had forgotten who Jesus really was. They had forgotten that he was God's son, as we'll see later. But, and that's what I mean then when I say that their, their motivation was worldly. It was this worldly. It was self-centered instead of God-centered. Mary's referring to Joseph as Jesus' father in verse 48 makes that, makes that clear. And so Jesus searches their motivation for seeking him, but he, but he also searches your and my motivation for seeking him. Why are you here this morning? Hopefully, hopefully all of us would say, I'm here to seek God. It's the answer, of course, we should give. But, but why? Why are you, why am I seeking him? What is your motive? It's a searching question. But it's a necessary question. You see, it's all too easy to have and, and it's, it's all too easy for, for believers even to develop a worldly and a self-centered motive for seeking Jesus. Our motivation for seeking Him can so easily be without, again, as I mentioned, without realizing it, that, so that we can get ahead in life, so that we can fulfill our desires for, for an easy life or, or so that we feel good about ourselves. But those are worldly motivations. Self-centered motivations. And sooner or later, they leave us frustrated and disappointed with the Lord. Because He's not here. He's not here to fulfill our worldly desires, our self-centered desires. He's not here to fulfill whatever we want Him to do. Maybe you're here this morning, and outwardly you, everything looks great. But inside, in your heart, you're disappointed with God. Maybe even angry with Him. Because He hasn't done in your life what he, you thought He should do. Maybe it feels even to you as if He hasn't even noticed you. Maybe you need to hear Jesus' searching question. Why were you seeking me? Could it be, could it be that your motive was worldly? was self-centered. But what if, it, what if that's true? What if that's the case? What if our motives, what if you hear that question and you look at yourself and, and by God's grace you see, yes, I have been seeking him for the wrong reasons. What are you to do? Well, listen to Jesus' words in John 6, verses 26 and 27. Jesus had just done the miracle of feeding the 5,000 there and the people, he, he had gone away from them. He had crossed the sea on the Sea of Galilee but the people, when they didn't find him, they, they began seeking him. And they followed him across the Sea of Galilee back to Caper, Capernaum. And he says to them, when they, when they come to him, he says this in John 6, verse 26. Verily, verily, I say unto you, ye seek me, not because you saw the miracles, but because ye did eat of the loaves and were filled. In other words, the people had worldly, self-centered motives for seeking Jesus. But what does Jesus call them to do instead? Verse 27. Labor not for the meat or the food which perishes, 
but for that meat which endures unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you. For him has God the Father sealed. In other words, he's saying, Seek Jesus, seek me for my own sake. Because as he goes on to say later in that chapter, that that food that he gives is himself. He gives himself as the bread of life for salvation, for everlasting life. He is the one approved, sealed by God the Father. Seek him. Seek his salvation in and through him. Oh, how important it is to hear, to really hear, to consider Jesus' question in response to his frustrated and confused parents. Why were you seeking me? Why are you seeking me? Too often and too easily we seek Jesus for wrong motives. And that's why we become disappointed and frustrated with God. But, but it's not only our wrong motives that can cause that disappointment. It can also, it can also be a wrong understanding of him. And that's what we see also in, in Mary and Joseph. Son, Mary said, why hast thou thus dealt with us? Why, why have you done this to us? Behold, thy father, thy father, referring to Joseph, and I have sought thee sorrowing. Mary and Joseph have begun to think of the Lord Jesus only as their son. And Jesus responds then not only with a searching question, but also, and here we come now to our second point, also with a loving correction. Verse 49 again. And he said unto them, How is it? How is it that ye sought me? Wist ye not? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? Do you hear? Do you hear the correction? Who was Jesus' father? In Mary's mind, and, and probably in Joseph's too, it was Joseph. Now, that doesn't mean they had forgotten how Jesus was born. It doesn't mean they had forgotten how, that Jesus had been conceived in, in Mary's womb, not by Joseph, but by the miraculous power of the Holy Spirit. It doesn't mean they had forgotten that Gabriel had told Mary that the child she would give birth to would be the Son of God. That's not something, experiences like that is not something you can just forget. But it is something, it is something that they could forget to live out of. And it's not really surprising in one sense. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem and after their, their flight into Egypt, Joseph and Mary eventually returned to Nazareth. And for at least 10 years, life was pretty normal for them. Joseph took up his work as carpenter and they settled into a, 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 a routine in their home. And, and the Lord Jesus, he, he grew from a little baby. He grew during those years, just like every child does, just like you children are growing. He was certainly a unique child. Luke 2 verse 40 tells us that he became strong in spirit, filled with wisdom. And the grace or the favor of God was upon him. But at the same time, at the same time, his childhood was ordinary. He grew taller, just like you children are growing taller. He lived in Mary and Joseph's house, just like you children live in your mom and dad's house too. And it may even be that Mary and Joseph, during this time, during these 10 years, had other children because we were told later on in, in Luke that Jesus had brothers. 
And so it would have been easy. It would have been easy for Mary and Joseph to let all the busyness and and the routine and the responsibilities of normal family life begin to control how and what they thought about Jesus, even without realizing it. It would have been easy for them to begin just thinking of Jesus as their child, as their son, and and of Joseph as, as his father. Even though the angel had told Mary that Jesus would be the son of God. So it's not surprising. It's not surprising in one sense that Mary says to Jesus, your father, meaning Joseph, and I have sought you anxiously. But then Jesus comes and he responds with such loving correction. Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? Jesus isn't referring to Joseph here, congregation. He's referring to God. Because where was he when he said this? He, was, he wasn't in Joseph's carpentry shop. He was in the temple. He was in the house of God. He had been there while Joseph and Mary were searching everywhere, looking frantically for him. He had been sitting there as a student, learning about the things of God from the doctors, from the religious teachers, asking them questions and astonishing everyone with his, by his own understanding, by his own insights and, and, respo- and responses to what was being taught. That was the business, the things he was busy with. When Mary and Joseph found him, he was busy, congregation, with the things of God. And so when he refers to everything he was doing, everything he was doing while they were seeking him as his father's business, he's correcting. Lovingly, gently, but he's correcting. He's making clear to Mary and Joseph that God, not Joseph, is his father. Didn't you know? He corrects them so lovingly. The way he asks the question implies that they did know, but they, but they hadn't been living out of that knowledge. So Jesus was, was correcting them. He was reminding them of who he really was. Now, we're not in the same situation as Mary and Joseph. They had a special relationship with Jesus that none of us have. But isn't it possible That we too, like Mary and Joseph, sometimes have, sometimes live with a wrong understanding, a wrong mindset about who Jesus is. Doesn't it happen sometimes that the way we live, the way we talk, or the way we think doesn't reflect a right understanding of him? When we get disappointed with him because he doesn't give us all the things we want, because he doesn't give us what we're asking for, Doesn't that reflect a wrong understanding of Jesus? Doesn't it reflect that we've been thinking of Jesus more as a genie who's there to give us whatever we wish for rather than the all-wise Son of God, rather than the Savior of sinners, rather than the sovereign Lord of heaven and earth that the Bible reveals him to be? Oh, how thankful, how thankful we should be for Jesus' loving correction in our text and his loving correction of us Reminding, reminding us of who he really is, the only begotten Son of God, come to do the will of his Father. He is the Son of God. How that calls us then not to try and manipulate him. How that calls us not to respond in bitterness or in anger to what he has allowed or to what he is doing in our lives but rather to respond to him in submission, in faith, in humility, in repentance, firmly and increasingly. 
how much reason there is to respond this way, not just in view of, of Jesus' searching question and his loving correction, but also, also now thirdly, in view of his holy compulsion. His holy compulsion. You see, Jesus doesn't only clarify to Mary and Joseph who he really is. First and foremost, he's, he's the son of God. But he also reveals that as God's son, he is obligated. He is compelled to God's service. Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? Congregation, in many ways, this is the key point of the text, of the whole passage. Luke hints at this when he says in in the very next verse, verse 50, that Jesus' parents at that time didn't understand what he was saying. They didn't get it. And the implication for us as readers is this. Make sure you do. Verse 50 is like a flag or a flashing light telling us that, that Jesus' words in verse 49, his first recorded words, are all important here. So what is Jesus saying? What is he revealing in his first, in those words, as a 12-year-old child? He's not revealing not just who he is as a son of God, but he's revealing why he came. He's revealing why he was here. He was here to do his father's will. And that wasn't an option. It was a must for him. He's not just his father's only begotten son. He's also his father's willing servant. I must be about my father's business. That was his holy compulsion already as a child. And it would be his holy compulsion all throughout his life. The Lord Jesus was teaching Joseph and Mary here already that his, his, his great purpose for having come into their lives, his great purpose for having become part of their family, it wasn't, it wasn't so much to be be their child. It was to do the will of his father. To do the will of God. As Hebrews 10, Hebrews 10 says of him, quoting from Psalm 40, Lo, I have come to do your will. Now Luke tells us that Joseph and Mary didn't understand that at the time. But, but the reason he tells us that is not to criticize them. It's to ask us, do you understand? Do you Do you understand that that's why Jesus has come? Oh, if you do, then how can you not trust him? How can you not worship him? How can you not submit to him? Because what is, what is his father's business that he had to do? Just think of that name given by the angel to this child. Jesus, meaning Savior. That's his father's business. That's his father's will. It's for him to save his people from their sins. His father's business is for him to be, as Simeon says in Luke 2, verses 30 to 32, the Lord's promised salvation, not just for the Jews, but also for all peoples, for Gentiles like you and like me. His father's business is for him to be, as Anna testified, the redeemer and the ransom, the one who would offer up himself for the redemption of people who were dead in trespasses and sins and who were under the wrath of God. That's why Jesus came. He came, as Jesus himself says later in Luke 19, verse 10, to seek and to save that which was lost. That's his father's business. That's his father's will. And that's his, Jesus' great mission. 
That's what he must be about. That's his holy compulsion, and that's his greatest delight. He has come to fulfill the great saving business of his Father. But how humiliating that business would be and was already. It meant that he, though he was God himself, had to make himself of no reputation by taking on the likeness of sinful flesh. It meant that he, just like, just like you, dear children, in his human nature, had to learn many things. It meant that, as he will later reveal to his disciples, that he must suffer many things and be rejected and be killed and be raised again from the dead the third day. Why? Because that was the only way we could be justified. That was the only way we who are guilty sinners could be saved and justified and reconciled to God. That was the only way we could be sanctified and one day also glorified. Oh, don't you see? Don't you see with Jesus' holy compulsion here how amazing he is, how great a savior he is, how great a a person he is? Do we understand what Jesus is really about? Is this Jesus? The Jesus who must be about his father's business, the, his business of saving sinners. The Jesus that you are seeking. Are you seeking this Jesus? Or are you seeking another Jesus? A Jesus who doesn't ask too much of you. A Jesus who doesn't interfere too much in your life with your plans and with your dreams? Are you seeking a Jesus who's not going to let you suffer? Are you seeking a Jesus who must be about your business? Did you not know? Did you not know, he says, that I must be about my father's business? Why should you be disappointed with that? Isn't that what we really need in our lives? Don't we need to be saved from our sins? Don't we need God's forgiveness? Don't we need reconciliation with him? Don't we need to be sanctified and made holy and made more like Jesus Christ? Don't we need a Savior who is committed to bringing us to glory even though he does it through the road of suffering? Don't we need this Jesus whose holy compulsion is to be about his Father's business from start to finish? Or do you see the gospel comfort there is here in his holy compulsion? And do you hear the gospel call to bring our expectations of of him in line with the Father's? That's what Jesus' words were calling Joseph and Mary to do, and that's what he's, he's calling us to do. Bringing our expectations in line with the Father's, we will not be disappointed. We will not be disappointed because Jesus finished the work that his Father had given him to do. But there's one more thing to notice very briefly yet in response to his, in Jesus' response to his parents. And we see that in verse 51 where Luke tells us that Jesus went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject unto them. 
when you think about what Jesus had just said in verse 49, that he was a son of God who must be about his father's business. Verse 51 is absolutely stunning. Or not? It, it, highlights, it highlights as we consider in our last point, Jesus' breathtaking submission. Here is one who knows himself to be the special, the only begotten Son of God. Here is one who, who knows himself, who has just made clear that as God's only begotten Son, he's here on God's business, not Mary's or Joseph's. And yet what does he do? What does he do right after speaking those words? He gets up. He leaves the temple. And he goes back to Nazareth with Mary and Joseph and was subject unto them. The the, the verb here was subject. In the Greek, it indicates that his subjection, his submission to his parents was was continual. It It was constant. It was ongoing. That's absolutely breathtaking. When you think of who Jesus is, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, continually subjecting himself, submitting himself to imperfect parents who didn't even fully understand him. Don't you think, children and young people, there's a lesson here for you? Don't you think there's a lesson here for all of us in relation to the different authorities that God has put in our lives. But as exemplary as his submission is for us, that's not what I want to focus on so much this morning. What I want to focus on is just how amazing, how amazing, how much gospel there is in his submission. When his parents didn't understand him, when Mary came to him and expressed her frustration, her disappointment with him, Jesus didn't get up and walk away as the Son of God. He went back with them. And he even submitted himself to them. Doesn't it show you how absolutely patient How infinitely patient the Lord is with weak people, with people who are slow to understand, people who are weak in faith. Doesn't that give us hope? Doesn't that give you hope who may be here today and you've been feeling this frustration and, and you've been convicted, yes, my motive's been wrong, my understanding has been wrong, and Doesn't his submission to his parents show you how willing he is? How willing he is to save you, to renew you, to restore you. Because he went, he, he went and he submitted to, to his parents and he did that. He did that in order on behalf of sinners like us. Sinners like us so that we, we might be taught to submit to him, the one who perfectly understands us, the one who is perfect, in whom there is no spot or blemish, 
if Jesus, the Son of God, so willingly submitted himself to imperfect human parents, shouldn't we, shouldn't we willingly and continually submit ourselves to him who is perfect in every way? You see, he went, he went also to, to that. He did that submitting and he, and he continued on and, and he, became, he became the Savior dying on the cross so that he might give us his Holy Spirit because, and that's what we need, the Holy Spirit for that submission because by nature we don't submit to him, by nature we refuse him, by nature we resist him. You maybe feel that in your own heart this morning. But he has died, he died and he rose again so that, and he ascended into heaven to give us his Holy Spirit to save, to save sinners. Oh, what a blessed thing it is. When he so works in your heart and life that you learn not just once but over and over again to come to him no longer with your own set of expectations, your wrong demands, your wrong desires, but simply coming with empty hands, depending on him, the one who humbled himself even to the death of the cross to save you, to sanctify you, and to bring you to glory. Does that describe you? Are you submitting? Are you trusting in Jesus Christ? Praise God. Praise God if you are. And if you aren't, then come. Come to him now. Because he will not turn you away. He is willing. He is willing to save. His submission, his breathtaking submission shows us how willing he is. What an amazing gospel response the 12-year-old child Jesus gives to his anxiously seeking parents. Do you see that with me? Doesn't his searching question, his loving correction, and his, his holy compulsion, and his breathtaking submission tell us what a great and a wise and all-sufficient Savior he is? Doesn't it tell us that when we feel frustrated or disappointed or upset with him, the problem, the problem isn't him. It's never him. It's us. It's not him that has to change. It's our expectations. Because he is perfect. There is no unrighteousness in him. Oh, then let us by grace trust in him and let us praise him and let us live for him and thank God for this wonderful gospel glimpse into Jesus' childhood. Amen.